Welcome to The Savvy Founder, the one place for entrepreneurs and business owners, away from the everyday bustle, where we help you find your path to a profitable and bright future. Now here's your host, The Savvy Founder and armchair sociologist himself, Philip Topham. Hello, I'm Philip Topham. Welcome to The Savvy Founder. I'm really happy today through the gift of technology. I'm sitting in Southern California and my guest Vitaly Golom is sitting in Kiev. Welcome, how are you doing today? Thanks Philip, um, very good. I'm finding a little jet lag, haven't been in Kiev in a couple of years, visiting some family and friends here, finally. So nice. here I am. Wonderful. Yeah, so we got connected uh, you know, through, through the network and, and putting the message out that we need, you know, wanted to interview uh, people that had devoted their lives to the startup world. And you'd certainly done that. Uh, why don't you give our audience just a little bit about your, you know, a thumbnail sketch of your background and, and what you do today? Sure. Uh, so my name is Vitaly Golem. I'm my partner at Drake Star Partners. We're a top tier global investment bank. And I focus on the mobility sector. The way I got here is a little bit unconventional. I'm an unconventional banker, kind of Benjamin Button of banking. I went backwards into it. Um, my family immigrated from, from the Soviet Union when I was a child. I grew up in, in Bay Area in Cupertino. Uh, went to Homestead High School, same one that graduated jobs in Bosniak. And uh, very early on, I got started in the startup world. And by the time I was uh, in college, freshman college, I was uh, running a design team at a dot-com way back when. Um, I then did a series of three of my own companies. Uh, last one was venture back software SaaS e-commerce platform. Uh, sold that company in 2015. Uh, by that point, I was, I was pretty heavily involved as a mentor and advisor of a number of venture funds and accelerators and uh, joined uh, Hewlett Packard and helped form HP Tech Ventures, the corporate venture arm of Silicon Valley's original startup. Um, spent a couple of years there and went off and started my own investment bank, um, helping uh, startups raise money and uh, sell themselves to m and um, a lot of people don't know what investment bankers do. So quick explanation on that. Um, and then last year, I merged my practice with Dragstar, which is a, a leading platform. So today I, I focus on mobility. So everything future, uh, mobility, EV, autonomy, um, on, on land, in the air, on water, um, all the different component technologies as part of that, and also energy transition. Uh, which is all of the charging infrastructure, which is becoming very, very important for everything in, in future mobility. Um, published a book a few years back called Accelerated Startup, um, which is used by a number of accelerators and, um, and in business schools as a textbook. Uh, basically, going through this experience that, uh, Philip, that you're, uh, that you're communicating to your audience here, uh, from, from idea to product to company, is the book, and uh, going through that journey and, and really... Um, it's a tough one for most people. So uh, I respect your mission and I'm here to help. Wonderful. Yeah. So I, I want to delve into, so coming to the United States as a, a young child of an immigrant family, do you think that hurt you or helped you into the entrepreneurial world? I mean, if you look statistically, um, you know, the top entrepreneurs are immigrants and um, my, my parents, you know, my mom was a music teacher Back in Soviet Union, my dad was an engineer his whole life. And when they came over, my mom had to switch. Um, she chose to and then kind of switched to, to the medical world. 
and spent uh, 26 years uh, working in medicine. And my father, um, you know, was always an engineer, always a tinkerer, inventor, and entrepreneur. And I got a lot of that bug from him, I'm sure. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the first businesses that I did was with him together. And uh, that's that's a tough one, working with your dad. <laughs> doesn't matter if you're right, he's, he's still dad. Um, but um, no, I mean, having that hunger and wanting to succeed, I think that's uh, it's a very well-known um, immigrant story. Um, you know, grew up uh, middle class, uh, but always wanted to do things and was always, uh, my brother and I were always in a hurry to grow up and do our own projects. And, and we did things very young. So I was a youngest person in California at one point, I guess, or still maybe to sign my own mortgage. Um, I, I did a lot of things very young, started businesses when I was a teenager. Um, so at some point I, I, I became not the youngest person anymore. Uh, doing everything but uh, you know as a teenager I did a lot of things very early on so definitely yeah. helped um, but also grew up as a one and a half generation um, so that means I, I was young enough to where I had a little bit of a um, you know the old culture and certainly a culture at home uh, speaking a different language but uh, also kind of half American um, so I actually did a TEDx talk on that a few years back TEDx San Francisco yeah you read yeah, you, you share a little bit of culture, you know, background for me. You know, my parents emigrated when I was three years old, so from England. Uh, so don't speak another language unless you consider, you know, the British English as a, a different language. And some people think it is when you listen to a, a strong Cockney accent, right? Yeah, um, your English is so good. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I like words, so I have a big vocabulary. Um but yeah, I want to I want to delve into this this a little bit. So, music and engineering, parents, immigrant. Um, but was your entrepreneurial spirit, you know, born or did you create it? Like, you know, were you innately born with that? You know, I'm not going to work for somebody else. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to build my own business. I think it was very natural for me. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is really problem solving. And uh, in fact, my education is in design. So designers, you know, artists are, art is all about self-expression. Design mm -hmm. is all about solving problems. And so is entrepreneurship. Um, it's really about noticing something, some imbalance in the world and, and going out to fix it. And it could be with new technology. It could be with uh, innovation, a business model. Um, it's really about that kind of um, mental process. And, and I never, you know, I never really set out and said, hey, I don't want to work for anybody. Uh, at some point, I, I guess I became somewhat unemployable by running my own companies for, for most of my career. Uh, and it was actually quite tough to work in a corporate environment. You know, the only two years I spent in corporate in my life was at HP. And, and that was quite, um, quite something to get used to as far as how, how the process works there and, and managing up and everything else. But um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't very it wasn't a conscious choice to say, oh, I, I want to work for myself. But at some point, it just doesn't make sense to to do it any other way. Yeah, and um, you grew up in in Silicon Valley. Um, the light fixture just fell off, so very interesting. Uh, we'll edit that out. Um, you grew up in Silicon Valley, so what was it like to grow up? And what time period are we talking about exactly? The 90s. The 90s. So before, before the dot bomb. So when everything is taking off, um, what was that like? 
You know, um, looking back, I can make some some observations, but at the time, I was focused on same thing every other kid was focused on. You know, I was heavily into music, uh, probably thanks to my mom. But of course, um, I, I chose I chose drums, and well, she, to her dismay. Um, <laughs> so I was I was very very um, very very into music, and and that was the most important thing to me. Um, and um, it was uh, it was a normal, you know, you know, upbringing, you know, hanging out with friends and uh, getting my license at 16. And, and you know, the, the typical things that are important to a teenager um, didn't know any different. However, when I did start a business with my dad, it was a printing company. Um, you know, I, after I was the youngest employee of Kinko's, which is now FedEx office at one point at 15, um, I started a printing company with my dad and the shopping center that we chose was the same place where Steve Jobs and Bosniak bought parts for the Apple One. Um, so when you grow up in, you know, I didn't know any different, but kind of looking back, it was a pretty legendary place to grow up. And there's a lot of history of our industry there. Um, so, you know, there's certain things that rubbed off. And part of that is that, you know, uh, I've, I really grew up in Bay Area and I never left. I mean, I... <laughs> I travel quite a bit. I've been in 70 countries and, you know, there've been years where I've done 20, 30 countries a year um, as a speaker, et cetera, and trainer. Uh, but, you know, it's, um, I never got an opportunity to really live anywhere else. Never really had the strong pull. Although, for example, you know, I think on the bucket list for everybody is to live in New York for at least some time <laughs> um, at some point, but both my kids were born in San Francisco and, and kind of the, the roots are firmly planted in Bay area. Yeah. Very nice. And, in that time between the pre dot com dot bomb and you know fast forward to today, um, is there anything you would say is different about the folk, the people doing the scalable startups now? You know, certainly before the dot com, technology was new, right? No, nobody had built a business using a lots of technology. Whereas today, nobody can imagine building a business without technology. I mean, I, that's certainly pretty obvious. What, what other things do you see that's really different about the mindset or the, the entrepreneurial's journey then versus now? What, what advice do you sort of give people? Yeah, well, I mean, I was too young to, to hit, you know, the, the first couple of waves. Well, the first couple of waves were before it was born, but then there was a, a wave in the mid 80s with software in, in Silicon Valley also. Uh, but I certainly started feeling the waves starting in the 90s with different technology eras. Um, you know, the main thing in Bay Area that changed is that the crowd is different. And that's probably from 2010, 2012 and beyond. Um, where you have a much more transient group of people in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, um, much like you have people coming from all over the world to New York for, for the finance world and, and advertising and fashion for many, many years. Um, and in LA for the entertainment industry, you started seeing a lot more people coming to Bay Area to uh, chase their technology and startup dreams. Um, and I mean, part of that is great. Uh, which is you, know, you get kind of the best and the brightest from the world. It's kind of the Olympics of, of technology. On the other hand, you have a lot of people that don't have roots firmly planted in Bay Area that come over and they don't really care. I mean, they're built a lot of things probably out of the, out of the scope of our, our talk today about San Francisco. You know, um, 
there's a lot of problems in the city and people don't really care because they don't feel like it's their own, their, their city. They're, it's, they're just there to visit or spend a couple of years, build a career and leave. Um, but that, that's probably the main change. Um, but the different technology waves, um, you know, they, it, it's up and down. It's very predictable at this point. Um, you know, we had, the, we had the desktop revolution in the 80s where we first got desktop computers and a lot of companies growing up around that. And you have some history yeah. there. We have the um, the internet revolution, you know, late '90s, early 2000s. Then we had a lull for a couple of years, and there was not a whole lot of traffic on Highway 101 from, let's say, 2001 to 2003 or four. And then we had the, you know, social media uh, jump. Then we had the real push, you know, starting with uh, iPhone in 2007 then we had the mobile revolution so with each wave we have opportunities to do to solve the same problems in a different way and obviously technology there is a leverage and as a vc as an investment banker and something that i teach my my students um you know it's something that uh you need to talk about technology that wasn't available a year or year and a half ago that allows you to solve a problem in a in kind of a novel way and it could be the same problem over and over again that we just keep improving on and kind of um, collapsing the market, you know, making something 10 times faster, better, cheaper, or create a new possibility that wasn't possible before. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make is, is, is each of these technology waves uh, just builds on the next wave, right? So wherever you're starting, if you're an entrepreneur, and for, for the, those in the audience, you, you might think you've, you know, where am I starting? Well, there's always a new wave of technology starting. And just like you said, there's the, the same problem. It might be, it, it, the problems never go away. You know, how to get customers, how to, how to engage customers, how to deliver things efficiently. Those don't go away. The technology and how we use them and uh, will always improve, you know, always change. And I also think also we're right now fundamentally human. We're not changing super fast. We still get mad, we still get sad, we still are, you know, happy, joy, all the emotions, we still experience that, we still experience deep relationships. That really hasn't changed much at all. But the technology, how we do those things really has changed, right? Yeah, I mean, you can argue also, there's some there's some big negative things that came out in the last, um, you know, and with social media and, um, and the way the information is being fed to people. Uh, there's a great book that I recommend for those who are wondering how we got here um, as far as kind of the big division online and people really living in their own reality. There's a book called Antisocial, mm-hmm. uh, which talks about um, you know how kind of nefarious actors use the power of social media to brainwash people you know, effectively. And, and create this political divide that we have in, in the country, um, which is really sad. I mean, but, you know, there are a couple of, there are some things that are being done that are, that are pretty nefarious. Um, you know, uh, for example, Robinhood that just went public is a company that uses design principles from gambling that trigger people's, uh, you know, certain hormonal triggers uh, to induce them to certain actions. Um, and right. If you analyze all of that, I mean, it's it's not an accident. It, you know, we're we're living in a world where our kids and many adults are addicted to devices, um, and these things are very much on purpose. So, there are certain problems that are that are popping up that uh, we we need to really focus on. There's another good book um, by um, I forget his last name now. It's a little early in the morning here, but uh, the book's called Irresistible, and it's about device addiction. 
um, that's something that uh, is 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 very important as a parent. I can tell you that's something I focus on a lot as well. Yeah, is it so? We could we could talk about that forever, <laughs> but that might be a problem for one of the one of the audience to figure out how to build a technology that's that's um, less addictive and and uh, and very cognizant of the unintended consequences of tech, right? Um, I want to delve into, you know, we talked about the technologies you grew up with, some of the, the, the businesses that you had, and, and how did you get into the banking and investment banking space? It, it, I think you, you got there out of the HP Ventures and then the other stuff, or was that just tangential? I kind of wanted to understand that. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of an unintentional story as well. Um, I... For for a while, I was advising companies uh, to raise capital, and the projects got bigger, bigger, later stage. And at one point, when I was planning to leave HP, and uh, my plan was to actually raise my own venture fund, and uh, I had a couple of partners, and we were making plans for that. And I was recruited away by an investment bank that noticed some of my um, investment banking related work, advisory work, and, um, asked me to start a, um, Silicon Valley branch of a global investment bank and, uh, going through that process, you know, we are the most regulated industry in America. And, uh, what that means is having to take a lot of exams and, and licenses and, and getting a broker dealer license, et cetera, uh, which takes some time. So, uh, got into that and and you know it, it's actually for for me it's it's very interesting because I get an opportunity to work with um, with several clients at the same time these are great companies that are you know at this point well beyond the startup stage um, that are raising growth growth equity growth capital uh, or doing or selling themselves and uh, it's an opportunity to get kind of a quick feedback loop right in venture, um, for early stage venture, which is where most uh, venture capitalists operate, you know, you have this feedback loop of five to eight years or sometimes more, meaning you can make a decision and you don't know if you made a right decision with this company, with this team for, for a long time. In investment banking, you know, when you sign on to a project to help a company to run a certain process to raise capital or, or sell themselves or buy another company, you know, feedback loops pretty quick. It's about a, maybe a six month project. So it's uh, for me. It's pretty satisfying to be able to to work with a number of different projects. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess it's a, a little bit of a kind of ADD <laughs> where you want to <laughs> you you want to work on a lot of different things and and uh, maybe related space, but be able to have kind of a big picture view. And for me, that's that's very satisfying. Yeah. Let's let's give the audience a you know you talked about like you said you know people don't know what an investment banker does. And it has helped us understand the difference between an investment banker, especially where you're working in the growth phase versus the other end of the market, the, the, the angel, the, the seed rounds. Help me understand that a little bit. That'd be great. Yeah. So, um, you know, angel investors typically invest their own money right into companies directly and they and they invest in things that they know and like. And I do that as well by myself. You know, I, I angel invest in companies that I like and, and know. Uh, the space and try to be helpful to them. Um, usually these are smaller amounts, first money, kind of most risky money. Then you have venture capitalists who are investing on behalf of their investors, right? They go out there and raise a fund with their investors with a certain thesis, not too much unlike uh, a founder would raise money for themselves. And um, 
and then they invest their capital and, and try to be helpful to the company and they are the fiduciary and at a certain point you know they have to get that money back get the wins and, and distribute that to their to their investors now investment bankers are closer to let's say the dynamic you would have with your attorneys these are your advisors to the company and you retain investment bankers to run a certain process it is a very regulated industry because what we do essentially sell securities we um, we advertise a company that we don't you know that's a client of ours uh, to investors or to buyers and we have to you know do this very carefully and not misrepresent anything um, and there's a lot of regulatory framework that we have to go through so when you're raising money on your own you know you're representing your company that you partially own work for etc when you are an investment banker you are uh, representing a client to potential investors and. The reason companies hire investment bankers versus doing it themselves is that, you know, we are constantly in the market. We're talking to investors. We're talking to buyers. We have a pulse, uh, you know, finger on the pulse of what's going on in a particular sector. And in our firm, you know, I have 25 partners. We have 10 offices around the world. And, um, you know, everybody focuses on their own sector. And if you ask, you know, my partner in LA, for example, who focuses on sports and entertainment, he'll be able to, you know, very quickly tell you what's going on in that market today, right now, and who to talk to. Same thing for myself, you know, focus, as I mentioned, on mobility. So if somebody comes to me and says, I have this new, you know, EV related idea, I can very quickly understand and, you know, give them kind of a quick understanding of what's going on in the market there, probably a bit bigger context that they can, that they'll know on their own. Um, and going out there to raise capital, it's much more efficient. Um, it's a different process. It's a, it's a lot more professionalized when it's done by bankers. And, uh, you know, I have a great team of guys and uh, we put together the marketing materials, we put together data rooms, you know, run a very clean process, which ultimately allows the startup team to really focus on their business and the hundreds or thousands of hours that go into a, a capital raise or an M&A process are essentially outsourced to an expert team um, that, you know, sometimes big companies have corp dev teams internally. And they can do these process internally, but even still, they will turn to bankers um, to have the most current information and uh, contacts out the market. Yeah, absolutely. Really appreciate that. So at, at what stage of a company do they really get involved, you know, as an investment banker? You know, if I'm a founder and I go, I, you know, I've raised my first hundred thousand of, of friends and family. Should I be calling my investment banker and saying, hey, you know, come, come represent me? But when do they get whether they uh, get to your marketplace? Typically, you know, we, we look at series C and beyond. Um, you know, it, it really depends. There are different advisors out there. We're, we happen to be, you know, bigger. We're still in the mid-market. That means we do transactions typically under 500 million. Um, so, but for us, we're, we're a little bit bigger. And that means that our minimum transaction size needs to be at least 20 million, but I would say more average 50 million plus. And, uh, you know, most companies, they're not ready for that yet. Um, and the other thing, too, is it really varies by region. So in Silicon Valley, you know, VCs look for some key skills in founders. And one of those key skills in a CEO is to be able to go out there and raise money. So it's, uh, it, it's kind of a bad look for a CEO to hire bankers too early. When it's a later stage growth equity, you know, kind of a global raise, tens of millions, and they need to run an efficient process, that's what makes sense to bring in bankers. In Europe, you'll find startups hiring bankers at Series A. It's much more common to have agents um, or advisors helping out earlier. But in Silicon Valley, it's a much later stage process. Got it. And and with the, um, so you've had this 
early career in the startup world, did your own equity raise, venture HP, then go into the banking world. But you also wrote this book on accelerated startups. So tell me about that book and why'd you write it? You know, I, I like I mentioned, I've gone around the world uh, many times and I've spoken to a lot of founders and um, everybody thinks that um, they have, you know, unique problems. In reality, all startup founders encounter the same problems with a different accent. And, um, you know, what my goal was with the book is, you know, I went through a lot of, quite honestly, a lot of pain and suffering building my, my startups and my first company, uh, especially. And what I wanted to do is save the first, uh, let's say, year or two of pain and suffering for founders and really scale myself a little bit and be able to put the knowledge that I've accumulated by being in the trenches for, you know, 20 years now. Um, and, and be able to put that into something that's a little bit more portable and easier to get out there. Uh, I also know, you know, there are lots of books out there that are, you know, a book on kind of fundraising, it could be very superficial, or a book on, you know, product management, or kind of these piecemeal things. And it's really up to the founders to go out there and put these things together. And oftentimes, they don't really have the bandwidth, or they don't know what they don't know. So my, my effort was to give them kind of a soup to nuts um, from idea to product to company manual of how to think about this process and, and, and touch on a lot of these points. So I don't touch a whole lot of technical aspects. You know, they can, they can dive in depending on what they're going after, if it's software, hardware or whatever industry. But a lot of the, a lot of the emotional things, a lot of the things that they don't, don't know how to recruit team members, um, how to think about capital raise, you know, all these things I put in there. And, and I really kick it off with kind of history of innovation and the history of Silicon Valley, just to give them greater context on uh, what is it that, you know, what is this journey that they're about to get on, you know, just for them to understand uh, the battlefield, so to say, <laughs> and how all of this works. So with that, what, what's the biggest misperception that you see with, with entrepreneurs getting on the journey and getting on this battlefield, to, to use your phrase? Yeah, I mean, one thing that um, has been very... You know, that, I've, that I've seen increasingly more in the last, I don't know, five years or more. Um, I, I wrote an article about this on Medium, put it out there and it went a little viral. It's, it's a lot of people coming to Silicon Valley thinking that they're going to raise capital as tourists, right? Um, Silicon Valley is kind of a special place and um, there are thousands of companies that are funded on an annual basis by professional investors. And there are tens of thousands of companies that are being formed or, or entrepreneurs landing in Silicon Valley um, there are companies that, you know, foreign companies or from another part of, of the U.S., they would form a company in Delaware and say, okay, I'm ready to go to Silicon Valley and, you know, land in, at, at SFO and, and go raise money. Um, but they don't realize how the dynamics in Silicon Valley works. And it's really, it's, it's really kind of mafia rules. It's uh, really about trusting people, you know, especially at seed stage. All you have is an idea and a team. And the idea could be, you know, not so unique, or if, if you're onto something interesting, there are likely other smart people, you know, with, with more resources that are working on at the same time, but it's really about building your rapport and being trusted and, and being recommended by somebody and being introduced by somebody, you know, and that takes a long time to kind of get into that inner circle. It takes a year or two for somebody to land and, and just kind of get the lay of the land and establish themselves. So that's something that's, that's very common um, that I think, you know, for the, for the rest of the world, that's a very important thing to understand that uh, Silicon Valley is a very different place. Yeah, I, I, 
I, I tell even even here in Southern California, I, I tell anybody that's raising money or trying to build their business, the, the one thing that they can do that doesn't cost money is build their relationships, build that trust mm-hmm. no matter, and learn how to build those relationships. Because if they're needing to raise money, they need to build relationships with with people who have money or know people with money. If it's, it's building you know, a team, you need to have you know, people that will refer you good technical talent to programming talent, you know, design talent. Um, and if you're trying to recruit partnerships and letters of intent, it's all relationships, right? It's all building on trust. And so I, th- I would say, you know, if you can learn how to network, you can, you can build your net worth. Um, it's, it's not networking, it's net worthing. So very critical skill that I, I don't think Silicon Valley talks about enough. I think they talk too much about the, the lean business canvas and the customer discovery and not enough about soft skills. Do you, do you agree with that? Do they, you know, I would say, yeah, from the outside, it seems like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, discussion on kind of more technical bits, but in reality, um, you know, there's a, there's an adage that goes, if you want, um, if you want advice, ask for money, if you want money, ask for advice. Um, it's really true. And, and one thing that's difficult to understand until you go through it for most founders is that, you know, you really shouldn't be chasing investors. You really should be chasing your customers and focusing on building your business and the money will really come. You will get noticed if your business is getting traction and, and moving up. And if you spend, you know, all your time chasing money and saying, okay, everything will be great. As soon as I close around, I know what to do. You are woefully mistaken. Um, you know, it's really important to, to, to test your hypothesis. You're, you're pretty, you know, you have an idea, you're probably going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong about pretty much everything about it. Maybe you're onto something, but you need to start working on it and getting it out there and, and proving your thesis, finding your customer, and then building on that very quickly. And then giving yourself a very narrow set of problems to solve, kind of a, a very small experiment that you can prove one way or another and build on top of, not try to say, okay, I already know everything. I'm just going to build it. You know, that often, I mean, that almost never works, right? For you to have this kind of brainchild and, and be able to go in and build it. And then it just takes off. It just never works. Every book you read about um, every interesting company, they got there by, you know, it's a slog, it's iteration, it's changes, it's setbacks. It's never right on the first try. So um, think about that as you're, you know, as you're out there you know, developing your idea and don't be in a hurry, right? That's the other thing that I tell founders is, you know, um, you're about to get on this journey that's going to take over, you know, if, if you're good, like if it works out, you're eight, it's a five, eight, 10 year journey. It's, that's a big chunk of your life, of your career. Uh, but it's very easy to go and burn a couple of years just spinning your wheels and eating ramen and not getting anywhere. And you can only do that a few times before you have to get serious about your life, right? You're not going to, you know, this, this lifestyle of, of being a you know, founder and, and, you know, this ego trip of hanging out with a CEO business card, but uh, not actually doing anything or producing anything or, you know, creating jobs or, or creating any kind of value. I mean, that has a limit, right? You can only do that for a little while. It's just like actors in LA, right? You know, if you're going to be- absolutely. Uh, yeah, if you're going to be out there, you know, serving tables for for a decade, at some point you got to realize that you're you're a waiter, you're not an actor, and um, you know these these things are very important. And this brings up a point of kind of mental health in 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 the startup world. It's a very tough thing 
for people to go through. And a big problem that a lot of founders, they're so um, they're doing this for so long and they're so uniquely focused and they put all their time and effort into their company is that their identity, their personal identity merges with that of the company. And that can be very dangerous because you're working on some, something that's essentially an experiment and most experiments fail. And if the experiment fails and you feel like a failure, right? You tie your own personal identity to this company, that can be a very dangerous thing, right? And there are a lot of founders out there that are miserable inside going through this thing, you know, dragging themselves out of bed after a certain point, uh, but have to put on a smile and say they're killing it to the outside world. Um, my message to everybody is like, look, you need to have a healthy separation between this experiment you're working on, right? Scientists don't, don't have this problem, but founders do. Um, you need to have a healthy separation. You need to take care of your body. You need to, you know, work out, eat well, eat properly, take vacations, have friends, spend time with family and work in your company. Of course, you're going to work a little bit longer hours. And I can tell, you know, bankers work, you know, right now we're working seven days a week, 14 hours a day. But, um, you know, I, I try to focus on, on all the other parts of life because it goes by very quick, right? Before you know it, I was the youngest guy and now I'm not the youngest guy anymore in all the things <laughs> that I do. So it goes by quick. Um, and that's a very, really important point um, that I like to impress upon founders. Yeah, with that, um, really appreciate that, the, the, that it's such a, a big portion of your life and you better be prepared for it. And if it, if it is, turns out to be a failure, it's not reflected on you. Um, certainly the adage for, for early angel investors is, you know, expectation that five out of the 10 companies they invest in, you know, five or six are going to flop and two or three are going to break even and one or two is going to make it. So, you know, uh, the one or two that are running around saying I'm successful, um, doesn't really take away from the eight or nine that that stood up to bat and and didn't have a successful exit, right? They they gave it their all. It's not necessarily their their fault for that, right? Yeah, I mean, angel investors, you know, that's really a professional of its own, right? There are some people that that start to dabble and just kind of throw money around, but if they get serious about it and they're expecting any kind of returns, there is portfolio theory. This is nothing new. This has been researched and measured. You need to make um, at least 20 investments to have a statistical chance of, um, of getting good returns. And um, certainly helps to get lucky here and there and get your 100x or 1,000x uh, type of return and pay back all your losers. But um, it's you know, people that are expect they're making a couple of investments and they're, they're thinking about it. You know, outside of Silicon Valley, you see this much more commonly or in Europe. You have people that are, um, you know, they're more in a traditional business where losing money is not something expected, right? Um, they expect returns that are somewhat modest, you know, 10, 20% growth a year, let's say, um, where startup world, that's very, very slow. But then they start investing in startups and they're expecting the same results. And then they get shocked when a, when a startup goes under. And it's like, surprise, surprise, you know, you're, you're, you're betting for completely different odds. You want big wins. That's, that means that you're going to have a much higher risk uh, for these companies to go zero. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that's a very important point from the other side of the table is that, you know, professionalism and investing and, and understanding that that's really a career and a, and a skill set. And, the, you know, it's not something you can just dabble in and, and buy lottery tickets here and there. So would that make it that the, the dabblers are, are, um, picking poorly and causing um, or hurting the investment industry and hurting the startups themselves because they're not 
they don't bring the 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 skill set to the table no i mean you know the most uh the most successful investors have a rigor to how they um, judge their investments. And I'll, I'll give you kind of a couple of examples. So first of all, to answer your question, I think it's a very good thing to have more capital in, um, in the startup world. And at the very least, when these startups fail, that means that the founder hopefully learned something and their next one has a much higher chance of success. But without that practice, you know, you're not graduating these, uh, these founders to be able to do that. So you need that liquidity, you need that activity, you need that investment to create a teaching environment. And, you know, I'm saying, you know, in Silicon Valley, all this teaching environment already exists, but outside in other parts of the world, for example, on the, I'm on the board of the Ukraine Venture Capital Association for the last six years, and there's a lot less activity, and obviously in Ukraine, venture activity, but we're trying to encourage more and more investment and for investors to understand that they have a high risk of losing, you know, going to zero with these investments, but it's kind of a generational change. So that means that the founders, you know, their second, third startup has a much, much higher chance of success. They've learned the lessons that you can only learn by doing it. You, know, you can't really, you know, learn it in class. Uh, you might be able to learn it out of a couple of books, but really for most people, you, you really need to feel it by doing it yourself. Um, so that's one thing. And the other is, you know, um, venture capital gets glorified, gets put on a pedestal by a lot of founders because it's kind of a power dynamic, you know, one is asking for the money, one's got the money. So obviously one's got the power, the other one doesn't. But in reality, it's a tough business and it's a high volume business. Meaning when I was, um, when I was a VC, I would look at probably, you know, depending on the year, 500 to a thousand companies per year. So several right. companies a day I would look at and statistically, you know, VCs will make an investment for you know, a, a typical VC partner will make one or two investments per year. Right, join a couple of boards and they will look at that many companies. So they will look at 500 or a thousand companies for every investment that they make. Right. And after a while, very quickly, you start building up a truffle nose as an investor and you start seeing, um, you start seeing patterns that of companies and, and founders that will make it. It's a little bit of an, an art you know, of an art because you need to figure out and kind of work backwards. You know, the companies that succeeded, you need to kind of deconstruct the formula of what worked there and try to apply it thinking to the future on this kind of next generation technology wave. Okay. Is this the right pony to put my money on uh, based on the factors that I see about the founder, about the team, about the market, about the product. It's, it's, it's pretty tricky. It's um, it's, it's very, very tricky. And it takes a lot of experience and volume to build up that, um, that knows for the right uh, company. Yeah. That's the, the whole adage. Uh, the investor has to be madly in love with the horse it has to, you know, love the horse and going to win the horse, going to win the, the race, but it has to be madly in love with a jockey, the person who's going to, you know, be the executive team to bring that, that horse across the finish line. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, oftentimes, you know, you could be wrong um, about the jockey or, you know, the founder is good at that stage, but when the company, you know, grows from two guys and a dog to 10 people, that's already a completely different cultural, different dynamic. And when it grows to 100 people, it's completely different. And if, if this person doesn't have any management experience or they're, you know, they're not good with people, they're not going to succeed. Um, so, you know, it, it's, uh, it's kind of a moving target. It, it's uh, more of the adage of, you know, the boat that's crossing the Atlantic um, and, you know, the, the boards are being replaced uh, one at a time. Is it really the same boat by the time it arrives on the other coast? Right. Um, you know, that's really what a startup is. Yeah, exactly. So, uh I, I just can't believe our time is just flying so fast. So 
Um, I'd like to like to ask you your own question as you reflect back on what you've done. Um, is there something that you would have told, wished you could have told your younger self that would have helped your entrepreneur, your own entrepreneurial journey? What What would you have said to your younger self? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's really, I mean, the one thing that I that I just talked about earlier about uh, separating your personal personal identity from your company. That's extremely important because um, that's that's the way you're going to be able to get through this this very tough process. Um, and have that objectivity and, and know, you know, when to change ideas or, you know, all those things. Otherwise you can get into a pretty deep uh, kind of deep hole and, and have a very miserable time. Um, that's one thing. Uh, the other is also thinking about, um, you know, not jumping on the idea, you know, giving yourself a lot of time to think about contemplate research. You know, if this idea, you know, if you have a, uh, an idea overnight and you just drop everything and start working on it, oftentimes it'll be kind of a half-baked thing. I would encourage at least six months of kind of exploring and understanding. And before you really commit yourself to this journey to really understand what you're getting yourself into and, and why you think it's an opportunity, is it still an opportunity when you've looked at all the competitors and how everybody's done it and, and all those things. Um, so really kind of think about it before you dive in. Um, and then ultimately um, one thing that's very important for people to understand and, and very difficult to explain is that it's going to take you the same amount of time and approximately the same amount of effort and, and uh, money to work on something big or something small. So what you should be focusing on is a very, very big idea. And for investors, you know, uh, they're certainly looking for big, big ideas. And oftentimes when somebody just starts, they're thinking of something very small. Right. And uh, again, kind of founders coming from Europe, you know, I've seen a lot of pitches and these are kind of middle stand companies, which are kind of they will only ever have 30 employees and they'll make a few million euro or dollar per year. And everybody has a nice lifestyle business, but that's not interesting to investors. You want something that will allow you to change a whole industry and, you know, multi-billion dollar problem and a platform that you can build um, long into the future uh, for something. So you know, really big ideas, you know, if you have uh, something that's bothering you for, you know, six months and you know it's not solved and you can't sleep without solving it, that's a good idea. Make sure then to maximize it to the biggest possible market, but then run a series of experiments and, you know, focus on the narrow, narrow kind of first set of problems that you want to solve um, that you can then uh, kind of solve that problem, iterate, on the solution. And then when you figured it out and it's growing, you can always stack on top of it. So that's called land and expand. So between all those things, uh, you know, that's how I'd approach it. If I was to start something new after all of my experience, um, <laughs> that's, that's something that, you know, and, and whatever the idea is, this is kind of the, the quick recipes you, you can, you can, you can apply that to any idea, any industry that you're working on. Right. That's, that's really, yeah, so let me, let me make sure I get it. Focus on your health. If you're going to work on an idea, make sure you really spend time figuring out the ins and outs of the idea. And if you're going to spend time on an idea, make sure that you spend effort on a big idea because it takes as much time as a small idea. So that's uh, wonderful. Really appreciate that. So Vitaly, how do, how does, uh, I'm going to have your book in the show notes, but how do people get in contact with you or how do they find out more? 
Yeah. So the, so the book um, is, is all over everywhere. Amazon, you know, audible, there's audio book, there's a, there's a printed book, there's an electronic book. You can find it anywhere. Um, I'm something that I'm launching this fall is actually a continuation of that, which is uh, my first cohort based course. So uh, with my team, we're putting out a five week course on pitching, which is one of the key skills. Uh, so I call it pitching like a boss. I've been doing that workshop for many years. And now we're putting together a cohort course that starts uh, in September. Uh, so that's something that I would encourage uh, new founders to take a look at. Um, and you can find out about everything that I do at uh, golem.net, my website, my last name, G-O-L-O-M-B.net. And you can certainly get in touch with me there. Perfect. And pitchy like a boss, what, what type of, what size company is that for the people that are big, uh, pitching big ideas? Or, or the lifestyle businesses of, of Europe? It's really, a, a, you know, we're organizing it uh, kind of in a business school method where we have lecture and case studies and we're trying to generalize it uh, where it'll be applicable. I mean, certainly it's startup, you know, startup fo entrepreneur focused, but it's accessible to students. It could be a high school student or a college student thinking about entrepreneurship in the future. It could be a, a new founder that um, has, you know, is about to launch something or is applying to an accelerator and they need to yeah. really figure out the, uh, the pitch. Or it could be somebody mid-career that just wants to improve their presentation skills. It's about body, body language. It's about uh, slides, a story arc. So we'll go through all that. Um, I've, I've taught and, and coached a lot of entrepreneurs, probably hundreds at this point, on how to pitch. And it's one of the key skills that, uh, that entrepreneurs need to have. Well, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Vitaly. I appreciate you doing this all the way from Europe, from Kiev, and uh, uh, lots of good stuff today to help out the entrepreneurs and shorten their journey. So I really appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate you having me on. I'm Philip Topham, the Savvy Founder. Thanks for listening to today's show. I really enjoyed speaking with Vitaly and getting a perspective of the Silicon Valley and the investment community. If you like the show, go ahead and leave it a five-star review, or better yet, share it with another entrepreneur and help them shorten their journey. If you're trying to raise money and want to get a pitch deck, go visit the www.thesavvyfounder.com and download your free 10 most fixable mistakes for your perfect startup pitch. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. I'm Philip, wishing you a bright and profitable future for both your personal and business lives. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and check out our website for tips, thesavvyfounder.com. You can also follow Philip on Clubhouse at The Savvy Founder, wishing you a profitable and bright future. Safe journeys. See you next week.